All right, we're in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 11. This is a, 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 a staple Palm Sunday text, um, but I want to I mention that obviously Zechariah is one of the two prophets that was sent in the book of Ezra. And so in a sense, Zechariah today, we're going to read as he prophesies the coming king. But we want to remember that he's prophesying it to this this post-exilic people who are trying to build the temple um, and that we've been studying for the last several weeks. So in a way, we're going to slide out of our Ezra text. But even today, as we read about Palm Sunday, we're reading from a prophet of that era who is prophesying to, to a people who are looking for the, the king of Jerusalem. So Zechariah 9 is verse 9 through 11 is going to be our, our text today. So Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would speak to us on this Palm Sunday. We celebrate uh, the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. Lord, we ask that as we read and study from the prophet Zechariah, as he spoke of the coming king, we ask that you would drive us today to our knees, that we would love your son, that we would love King Jesus more. Lord, that all of our lives would be a great celebration of his kingly nature, state, and place over our hearts. We call him Lord today. We call you Lord today, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. And every saint says amen. Now let me just do a little bit of history because I, I want to show you some context that we sometimes miss. I'm in 164 B.C., so 164 B.C., um, before Jesus was born, 160 years roughly, uh, we have what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, this would be what's called the intertestamental period because roughly the book of Malachi is, is actually written really close to our Ezra series, 400 B.C. So between uh, the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament is sometimes called the silent period. It's a 400-year period sometimes called the intertestamental period. Um, but we do have history. We do know some things that happened in that period between the conclusion of Malachi and the opening of the Gospels or the birth of Jesus. Remember, as we've studied in Ezra, we've studied that, that Babylonian captivity. So, so when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and brought the Jews into the Babylonian empire. But as we've studied Ezra, we're really studying the, the Persian empire because now the Persians have conquered the Babylonians, right? And they are now over the entire empire and they've allowed the Jews to return. But where the New Testament and the Old Testament um, leave out a portion of history in this intertestamental period um, is the period essentially when Alexander the Great the Greeks conquered the Persians. Now, if you'll remember um, Daniel's prophecy, the visions, there, there were before kingdoms, right? Do you remember this multiple times in the book of Daniel? There were the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. When we pick up in Jesus' life, we're going to be under the Roman Empire, right? But the, the time between would be under the Greek Empire and where Alexander the Great essentially conquers the entire known world. But remember, Alexander the Great dies at a really young age. And the, the, the Greco empire is kind of divided up in interesting little, little fractions. The, the period of the Maccabean revolt, which is recorded in the book of Maccabees, which we don't consider to be canonical. We don't believe the book, the, the, Maccabean, the Maccabean books are Bible, although the um, 
for instance, in the Catholic Church, this is a really late idea, um, they, will, they will say that the book of Maccabees are inspired. We don't believe that. Um, Jerome, who translated the, the Greek into the Latin Vulgate, he translated some of these intertestamental books, sometimes called the Apocrypha, but he made a very clear distinction that these books were not canonical, or he didn't believe them to be Bible. They were just history. And so in the intertestamental period, we have some history, and largely that the, the Greeks conquered the Persians, and now, therefore, the Jews living in Jerusalem are under the, the Greco empire. And what's happening in this period is, um, particularly under uh, Antiochus, the Jews are experiencing some serious persecution. Remember the Greeks, it was kind of their strategy to Hellenize the world. And so they wanted everyone to speak Greek. They wanted everyone to kind of share common culture, to worship the Greek gods. And so the Jews under the Greeks in the intertestamental period are heavily persecuted. They're, the men are told that they're not allowed to be circumcised. Do you remember the, I'm, I don't know why I'm giving you this information, but here it comes. You remember the weird part of Greek culture where um, they would kind of go to these, these gyms or these athletic events and the men would often be um, not clothed. They would be naked. And so um, it was at these events that they would, they would kind of, um, in these kind of baths, they would watch the Jewish men to see if they had been circumcised or not because they weren't allowed to be circumcised. They desecrated the temple um, in many different ways, and the temple was essentially closed for this period, and the Jews were commanded to speak Greek, and we see that transition kind of happening, um, what we would call the Hellenized Jews, and again, they're, they're essentially legislated that they are not allowed to worship Yahweh the way in which the Old Testament has commissioned. So the temple's closed, desecrated. The men are told they have to worship pagan gods. And um, there are some Jews who go along with this. But in 164, a man named Matthias um, rose up with frustration and kind of this righteous zeal. And Matthias began what was called the Maccabean Revolt, when he begins to, to push back against Antiochus's commissions, essentially saying the Jews can't worship in the way that God has ordained. Now, Matthias would die actually rather quickly in this revolt, and Matthias had five sons. The first son to lead, who I think was the third son in, in order of birth, was um, named Judas, and he would be called Judas Maccabeus, and that essentially means Judas the Hammer. Now, that's what they called me in high school. Um, that's Seth's joke. I just stole it for that moment. Um, they called him the hammer because he was uh, militarily kicking butt and taking names, okay? He was doing what, what, what should be done. And, um, and, and under Judas, Jerusalem begins to experience some um, religious freedom. So in the Maccabean Revolt under Judas, they're starting to get some of their freedoms back. They're, be, they're able to worship. There's some taxation that's happening that they're not happy with. The taxation's going. Um, but, but Judas will die and fight. And the, the next brother uh, to lead's name was Jonathan. And then the next brother to lead's name was Simon. Um, Simon, we are told in First Maccabees, again, this book that records history that we don't believe to be Bible. In First Maccabees, we're told that 
there were some Syrians in Simon's day who were trying to invade Jerusalem, and they were going to essentially apply some, some pressure on Jerusalem to no longer worship Yahweh again. They were attempting to kind of shake down Jerusalem's walls. And in and, and First Maccabees, we're told that Simon rose up and he fought them off with this kind of great fervor and military zeal. And then we're told in First Maccabees chapter 13, again, we don't believe this to be Bible, but verse 51 we're told that on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, harps, cymbals, and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So the idea of palm branches on Palm Sunday is is not an Old Testament idea. It palm branches are involved in tabernacles, but you remember we're we're working towards Passover. We're not working towards tabernacles, and so the idea most likely what scholars largely agree on most likely when the Jews began to use palm branches to celebrate the coming king or the coming leader um, was under the Maccabees, and so um, here the Syrians are trying to invade. Simon kicks butt. And the Jews come out with palm branches, symbols, songs. They're rejoicing at their triumphant victor who's now coming into Jerusalem. This is most likely where we grab context. We understand what the crowd is doing on Palm Sunday. They, they know that Jesus, John tells us, they know that, that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave for four days. It's coming towards Passover week. There are millions of people kind of flocking towards Jerusalem. And the crowds go, again, this isn't something prescribed in the Old Testament, but it's something we find in the intertestamental period. They go and they get palm branches, which are everywhere in, in, in Israel. They go and get palm branches, and they begin to sing and shout and rejoice at the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, again, it's very likely, most likely, that they have in mind Simon the Maccabee. But Jesus has in mind the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. There's quite a delineation between the the Maccabean leaders, these, these hammers who will triumphantly drive off every enemy of Israel and what Zechariah prophesied would happen when the king of Jerusalem came. Zechariah prophesied he would come in humility and on a donkey's colt. So again, they're looking for Simon, but Jesus comes to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Now let's read Zechariah's prophecy from chapter 9, verse 9 through 11. And I want to show you the delineation between what the crowd expected, craved, wanted, the Maccabean revolt, and what God ordained in his most anointed holy son. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, 
I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'll set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Again, quickly, remember that Zechariah is prophesying in the error which we've been studying for the last several weeks. He's prophesying after the Jews have left Babylonian captivity and they're building the temple now in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the, the, the temple. This is the second temple construction. And Zechariah is prophesying. Remember, the, they're being led by Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor, but they don't have a king, right? We've studied that. They don't have a king. And Zechariah says, one day your king will come, righteous and having salvation. But he won't come on a war horse. And he won't come in pride and arrogance. And he won't come to crush the nations. But rather the blood of my covenant will set your prisoners free. Now, the first thing we want to see is that when Zechariah picks up his pen inspired of the Holy Ghost to prophesy the coming of the Jewish king, the first thing he says is that he will be righteous, he will have salvation, yet he will come in humility. So again, think of the triumphal entry. That's what we call Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry when Jesus is working towards Jerusalem. He's working towards the Passover, his own crucifixion. And the, consider with me the kind of strangeness of the prophecy. That David's son, the king of Israel, the anointed one who will sit on the throne forever, he will come with righteousness and salvation, but in humility. What does the coming king have to do with humility? We are taught that kings should be a bit arrogant and proud, that, that people should fall before kings because they're wise and they should be men of great strategy and leadership, that they should be men of charisma, they should be men who dominate. But we're told that the coming king of Jerusalem would not come to dominate. We're told that the coming of king of Jerusalem would not come in arrogance and pride. He wouldn't come with his chest puffed out. The problem is, is that what the Jews wanted was arrogance and pride. What the Jews wanted was this kind of military leader who strode in and exuded. He just just sweat confidence. And they wanted someone who would would lead and who who would crush Rome. We are taught in the basis of of our culture in particular. We're, We're taught to worship people, to love and cherish people who conquer and dominate. Who, who, who lead with the strength of their arm. But God is teaching us something about God here. God is teaching us about God. God is not impressed with the strength of a man's arm. God is not looking for strong men. By God, He's looking for weak men. Paul said, in my weakness, He's made strong. God's looking for men and women who are very aware of their own frailty and their need for the power of the Spirit. Christ Jesus here obviously has has no need. He's fully God in the flesh. He has every right to puff out His chest. By God, heaven has been worshiping Him for eternity. The moment that angelic beings were spoken to existence, they came out crying, holy, holy, holy. If anyone has the right to be proud, it's Christ Jesus. But heaven is showing us 
that pride and that arrogance and that the strength of the arm is not what heaven adores. Heaven loves humility. The earth, the flesh loves arrogance. But Christ shows us the ultimate strength by triumphing over pride. And again, the problem is is that we as people, we, we love to be led by a proud man. We crave it. We crave someone who looks like they know what they're talking about, even if they're dumb as a box of rocks. But the prophet is uncovering something already. That the coming king, he wouldn't look like what humanity wanted him to look like, but rather he would show us what God is like. And so the crowds, they think, here comes the new Simon. Look, he's coming to bring us military victory. He's going to come with strength and power. And Jesus says to the disciples, go get me the donkey. And again, the, the practical application of this theme throughout the scriptures is this, is that the church, we cannot be people who love arrogance, but we must be people who recognize humility as the chief trait of leadership in the kingdom of God. The, the greatest in the kingdom are those who wash the feet of the saints. The church, the kingdom, is not to be led by people who are necessarily the most articulate or marked with the greatest leadership skills who lead in the strength of their personality. If they have those gifts, that's all good and well, but their chief attribute to lead in the kingdom must be selflessness. And for too long in the Western church, we've craved men who will lead us with their pride and arrogance. But Jesus comes low. And meek. And you'll have to have kingdom values to really love him. If all you want is to be led by someone who comes with a strong arm and dominates, you'll never be led by Jesus. Because you'll have to you'll have to love humility. You'll have to love lowliness. You'll have to recognize the beauty of a man who would be led to the cross like a sheep led to the slaughter and yet open not his mouth. There's strength. You want to talk about strength. Allow sinful men to spit in his face and he shuts his mouth still. He says to the disciples in the garden, If I would, I'd call legions of angels to come to my rescue. And he says to the Father, Take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He has the strength to submit to the will of God, even as he's being spat on by sinful people. He has the strength to endure suffering and the cross for the sake of someone else other than himself. He has the strength to care about the nations rather than caring about his own well-being. There's leadership. So first, he's not going to come like Simon came. He's going to come in humility. He comes low. And of course, all the prophecy, um, and, and man, we see in Revelation, the second coming, Jesus will come as a triumphant warrior. Jesus will conquer all of his enemies. It's very biblical. But, but God is showing us that his first, his first extension is always mercy. God delights in mercy. And so the the people very much want their warrior to come riding on a white horse.
they're crying. John 12, verse 12 through 14. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Then Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. They're crying, Hosanna. This is a, this is a, a Hebrew word that's actually really unique. It's only found in Psalm 118. And the word literally means save us. It means save us, kind of save us, please. We beseech you, save us, bring us salvation. But even here, they have in mind salvation as a political redemption. Save us from our oppressors. So they're, they're shouting at Jesus. They want him to be on a white horse. And they're shouting, save us from our political oppressors. And Jesus goes and gets a donkey. I don't know if you know this, but soldiers don't ride donkeys. That would be really bad strategy. And intentionally not a war horse. He doesn't want them to in any way perceive him as coming as a military man. And here we need to, we need to learn to love Jesus here. He does not come to crush by God. He comes to be crushed. He doesn't come to slaughter the nations. He comes to be slaughtered for the nations. He doesn't come to spill blood. He comes to spill his own blood for real salvation. That men would be delivered from guilt and condemnation and the grips of sin, death, and hell. And they say, come on a white horse, oh man of arrogance. And he says, go get me a donkey. Have no intention of slaughtering. Every intention of being slaughtered. So he doesn't come to crush. Again, they want him. They crave. They deeply crave him to be the kind of man who would mount himself on a war horse, draw a sword, and spill the blood of every Roman soldier who they view as their oppressor. They say, come spill some blood, man. But Jesus does not come to proclaim war. He comes to proclaim peace. And Zechariah prophesied that he would speak peace to the nations. His dominion, his rule, would be from sea to sea. Now look, he's not just after Jerusalem, ultimately. He's not just after Israel, but his dominion should be from sea to sea. To see, he doesn't come to just deliver Jerusalem politically. He comes to bring peace to the nations. Remember, Zechariah prophesied that the, the chariot, the war horse would be done away with, that the bow, that all military weapons would be thrown away because he would establish peace and not war. Now, there's a couple interesting things happening in, in the text here. We're told... Um, In, in John twelve nineteen, do you remember the Pharisees? They say to one another. So this is um, John's telling the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. The Pharisees say to one another, "You see that we're gaining nothing. You are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him." Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century, and we still have his work. Josephus told us that. Um, what was the year? Oh, it was a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion. They, they kind of, they, they took a census of the Passover week. And 
Josephus told us that, I think it was in the 50s, 50 AD, there were 2.7 million men who came to Passover week in Jerusalem. Men, not including women and children. 2.7 million. I don't know if you know, but that's a lot of people. Okay, And they're coming from around Israel, but they're also coming from the nations. They're flooding Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So now, imagine Jesus is coming in on a donkey, and there are millions of people from everywhere. Literally from the nations, and they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And the Pharisees look at one another and say, look, the the whole stinking world's going after him. What are you going to do now? And watch Zechariah again. He's going to say, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Because of the blood of the covenant, I will set your prisoners free. So, so here, what we've seen is Jesus is not going to come in pride, but he's going to come in humility. He's not going to come on a war horse, but mounted on a donkey. And he doesn't come to proclaim, um, his, he doesn't come to dominate the nations, but he actually comes to invite the nations into a new covenant of the shedding of his own blood. He doesn't come to declare war. He comes to declare peace on the basis of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. Prisoners would go free. Jesus, the night of his betrayal, he sits with the disciples And he breaks bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he holds up a cup of wine and said, this is the blood of the covenant. What is the declaration of the king, the coming king? It's not I'll destroy the nations with a strong arm. It's I'll love the nations by allowing them to destroy me. And again, if 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 our society... If your family will ever really learn to love Jesus, you'll have to see the beauty in these things. He's not Alexander the Great. We like to talk about Alexander the Great. I like to read Alexander the Great's stories of great military victory. You know, he's kind of presented as this, like, very handsome and intellectual man, strong man. He's he's kind of the epitome of what it is to be a leader, but that's that's not Christ. Christ, again, comes in humility and brokenness. And meekness, the king of heaven, comes to be spat upon because of great love. I was reminded this week, Seth, Pastor Seth and I were listening to a lecture. Um, and I was reminded this week of Philippians chapter 2. And this idea that Jesus says, whoever will exalt himself, will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And there's a bit of of irony and prophecy in Jesus' words there. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, Paul writes, And being found in human form, for he humbled himself, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
he humbles himself by being obedient. Again, allowing Roman soldiers to drive nails into his hands. They punch him in the face, prophesy. He humbles himself to obedient uh, to the cross as they crush his skull with a crown of thorns and blood as they tear his back with a cat of nine tails. He's obedient. He humbles himself in the crucifixion and God exalts him in the resurrection and ascension. He humbles himself ultimately. There is no greater humiliation than what Christ Jesus experienced. And because of this great display of humiliation, God raises him in power. And he ascends to the right hand of God. And Paul quotes Isaiah here. When Isaiah wrote in chapter 45 verse 23. Where Yahweh is speaking. And Yahweh says. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness. A word that shall not return. Meaning the word that I'm about to speak will be accomplished. Yahweh says. um, To me every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance. So Yahweh, the Father, speaks and says, To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that to Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. That word Lord there would be Adonai, which is the word that the Hebrews used um, instead of uh, the Tetragrammaton, instead of saying the, the holy divine name, which uh, Yahweh, Have, uh, uh, the, what, we, what we interpret as Yahweh. You know, when you read the Old Testament, every time the, the Hebrew scribes went to write Yahweh, they would, they would just write Adonai or Lord. And so in a sense, they are saying, Paul is saying, that because of his great humility and becoming obedient to the point of death, God unleashes great power of exaltation to to lift him from the grave and seat him at the right hand of God. And for all of eternity, he will be called Lord, Adonai, Sovereign One, over the heavens and over the earth. Not because of his pride or arrogance or leadership ability, but because of his obedience and humiliation and, and willingness to be crushed for the sake of the nations. Because he looked at the cross and he walked towards it. Not out, obviously not out of self-preservation, but because he loved the nations. And, and it's very clear that the disciples didn't understand this truth. Imagine Peter saying, Jesus saying, um, you know, you'll all deny me. You realize that all of the disciples walked away. And Peter says, never, never. Now they're in Gethsemane and Jesus is praying and sweating great drops of blood. He's clearly frustrated. And here come some soldiers looking for Jesus. And Peter draws his sword and swings and cuts off the ear of a soldier. I don't know if you know this or not, but I imagine if he got the ear, he was probably aiming for the head. He needed a little more practice. So Peter, and imagine he's, he's, he's working himself up, right? With, with, with all of the kind of strength he can get. This is about to be a fight. And he draws a sword and he swings with, with all of his strength, swinging for the head, you know, swinging for the moon. He misses and cuts the ear. And then Jesus turns and says, put your sword away. Heals the man's ear. And from there we get Peter's betrayal. 
right? Where they say, you're with him. And he says, no, I'm not with him. You're with him. No, I don't, I don't know him. I think sometimes we miss that, that Peter too, he thought we were about to go to battle and he's frustrated because he just swung his sword, man. He just, he was ready to risk his life and Jesus rebuked him rather than honoring him for his zeal. But the rebuke is in this fact that Peter still doesn't get it. He doesn't get that Jesus does not come to crush. He comes to be crushed. So again, the crowd's looking for Simon. They have palms, symbols, and instruments. And they're singing. They're, they're greatly worked up. Because they think here comes their victor. And Jesus, rather than getting a horse, gets a donkey, comes in humility, and marches towards his death. His willful death. He's not going to die in battle. He's going to willfully surrender. To spill blood. To wash you of your sins. Because our triune Godhead looks on our sin with frustration and judgment. But God, before final judgment, which will come, says to the nations, I will give you mercy. I will be crucified. I will shed my own blood so that you don't have to experience the judgment you deserve. He shows us a higher value. We learn the, the heart of our God in selflessness and love and this kind of agape love. But in order to really love it, in order to really love God, we have to recognize the dichotomy of what the world calls leadership and what God calls leadership. Seth, come for me. We'll get ready to close. So what do we celebrate as we celebrate Palm Sunday? We celebrate the kindness of our triune God. The kindness of God towards us in Christ Jesus. We celebrate humility and lowliness. We celebrate that Jesus strolled into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, not a war horse, to love us with his own death. To violently love us. Not to crush us from the back of a war horse. He didn't slaughter the nations, but he allowed the nations to slaughter him, inviting the whole world to come into the kingdom of peace, which will ultimately reign from sea to sea. And because of his great humility and obedience to the point of death, God in power raises us from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of God, and for all of eternity, he will be worshiped as the Lord of heaven and earth and everything under the earth. We are celebrating this morning the kindness of God towards us in this gospel. That you and I can live in peace with forgiveness. That we're not led by a hard man. That our king is not an arrogant man. He is righteous and has salvation but in humility, he loves us. We don't bow our knees to arrogance. We bow our knees to the ultimate expression of love. 
you stand to your feet and altar team if you want to get in place. So many times, so many times, the work of the enemy in your life is to pervert the nature of God. Right, and that's, that's basic. Garden of Eden, did God say, God really doesn't want you to have wisdom, right? And so the enemy, um, maybe you had, and I forgive me for this, but maybe you had like an awful biological father, just was abusive and angry, and all you saw from him was frustration, maybe he cussed you, and the enemy will work for the rest of your life to convince you that God must be like that. And then, then we have like this heightened political culture right now, and we, if we're not careful, we'll begin to think of Jesus as some kind of political leader who's lobbying for our vote. Jesus isn't lobbying for your vote. And, and some of you are led by maybe employers who belittle you. And so you begin to think of God as a hard master who you've got to earn his pleasure through perfect obedience. And the enemy will constantly whisper, God, God loves the nations, but not you. God is gracious, but you, you've gone too far. And every Christian, every single Christian will have to learn to talk back to that voice and to say with boldness and confidence, no, my God is love. He is a gracious father who adores me no matter what. I'm the apple of his eye. And, and, and to an extent, it becomes now about defending the character of God as the enemy attempts to pervert it. So this morning, the first thing I want to do, and and again, we our altars, we say, are a place of, of safety. There's no shame. There's This isn't a place, if anybody's going to throw stones at you, if they do, I will kick them right in the head, okay? Just bang. Um, so the first thing I want to do is, if you're struggling at all, if you've struggled at all, with your view of God, right? If you've viewed him, maybe like you view your father, if you've viewed God as a hard man and you feel like you've got to constantly be sweating to please him. And the first thing I want to do, I want to open the altars and I want to ask our altar teams just to lay hands on you. And we're going to ask that that voice be silenced today and that that worship will begin to rise up in your heart rather than fear and condemnation. And, and, and maybe that's just a slight thing that you've heard. Um, but the first thing we want to do is we ask the Lord to silence that. So the altars are open. If that's you, I want you to come. Maybe you want to come and just kneel and say, God, give me a, a clearer view of Jesus. Come on, sing for us, worship team. Come on, if that's you, don't hesitate. God, we need a clearer view of Jesus. You feel like you're striving? I'm going to ask you to come.
this morning, if you're here and you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus, you don't know about Christianity, it maybe feels a little stiff and religious to you. Um, the first thing we want to say is that what the Bible proclaims clearly is that God is the just judge of the universe and all sin will be judged. But God, before judgment, he offers mercy. And again, Jesus offers us mercy as he's violently crucified, violently murdered on a cross. That as he hung there, the scripture teaches, he thought of you. He hung there for you so that you wouldn't have to experience judgment. He hung there so that you can know forgiveness and life and peace. So you didn't have to live in condemnation and fear. He hung there not because he wanted to, but because he wanted you. But because he wanted you. And if that's you this morning, I want to ask you to come to the altars. We want to pray with you. The scripture teaches that if you would um, surrender your life to Christ, you could leave here totally forgiven. That you have a heart of stone. We all have hearts of stones. But when we surrender to Jesus, he gives us new hearts and new desires and new life. And he lavishes us with the love of God and the peace of God. That you don't have to live in fear and anxiety, but that you could live in perfect rest because Jesus died for you. And if that's you, I want you to come to the altars today.